Welcome to the Pilot TV Podcast and this, our long-awaited spoiler special for the OA. Over the course of this podcast, we'll be performing the movements, plugging into the tree internet, consulting our psychic octopus and cultivating our mind flowers as we delve deep into the multidimensional mysteries of Brit Marling and Zalbat Manglidge's incredible series. Joining me today is my regular pilot co-host, a man who could be, in many ways, this reality's alternate version of me, given that we are, in fact, both bald white men, a body that I could jump into if I wished to suddenly be awash in celebrity friends. He is Pilot TV's very own old knight, Mr Boyd Hilton. Thank you very much. Uh, I think we should apologise for the fact that we, it is two bald old white men, middle class white, might, one might add, um, because the only reason Terry's not here is because she hasn't had time to watch the bloody show no, yet. And, and one interestingly, we asked her questions to send us to, to people to DM us questions. Did you see one of the questions is why the hell hasn't Terry White watched this show yet? Yeah, that's a legitimate question. So there, yeah, apologies for it just being us blokes. Is your middle name, boy? Does it begin with a B? No. So we can't call you BBH? No, that's annoying, oh, isn't it? That is yeah. a shame. Yeah, it's that's, really annoying. I'll be honest, that's quite disappointing. Yeah. Are you feeling up to this? I'm up to it. I'm definitely up to it, yeah. I'm on a bit of a... I'm, a, like, I'm both exhausted because... So we've, ju- I've, we've I've just interviewed Zal and Britt, the creators. And I didn't want to do it, like, linearly, if you like. I didn't want to go through, you know, oh, you know, beginning, middle, ends. Yeah. Um, so I hopped around all the time. I hope they're okay with it. But, I, yeah, I mean, it just... I think, you know, and we could talk about it all night, couldn't we? There's so much to talk about. So I, I don't know where we begin. My theory... I've come up with an idea of where to begin our discussion about it, though, which is, you know, the very first scene of part two is there's a title card that says seven hours, 46 minutes earlier. Yeah. And you see this confusing image of a skateboarder at night skateboarding down some road. And then on the side of the road is Britt Marling as the OA in this dress. And then it it turns out to be a dream of Kareem, uh, the character Kareem. But what is it seven hours, 46 minutes earlier? Now, I didn't ask them that because I thought, they probably wouldn't want to answer it necessarily. But some people have suggested that it's it roughly coincides with the actual running time of the whole of, of part two, but doesn't exactly. Interesting. Yeah, so I think the exact running time, official running time, is something like seven hours, 26 minutes, but it's pretty close. Now, we didn't ask them about that, but we did ask them a number of other searching questions. Yeah. But before we do that, I mm. should say, anyone who listens to the podcast regularly will know that obviously we're huge fans of the show. And we have little doubt that you've all watched it by now, unless you're Terry, in which case you haven't. However, if you have not seen all the way to the end of season two, then please turn this podcast off immediately and hie thee to Netflix and go and watch it. We will be getting very plot heavy in this podcast and spoilers will be flying at you from every conceivable dimension. So this is your last warning to turn back. Still with us? Then let's continue. There is a lot to talk about with this show, but really, who better to talk about it than Britt Marling and Zalbert Manglidge themselves, the creators of the show? So using the power of trans-dimensional communication via a device that allows us to project both our voices and consciousness across realities, it's called Skype, we called up Britt and Zal to ask them all our burning questions about season two, and this is how it went. Just in general, to start with, I mean, we're going to get into deep spoiler territory, by the way. But before we get into the nitty gritty of it, just the response to the whole thing after working on it solidly for two years and dominating your lives. How do you feel about the response to it? And have you monitored that and how, you know, you've blown minds worldwide, basically, with part two of the OA? Uh, we, we don't we don't we actually don't monitor it. We don't think about it that much. We're trying to catch our breaths after working for so hard and trying to live like normal lives. <laughs> yeah, and I guess the, the sort of disappointing part of it is so in, in working like that so intensely for 
really the last four years because we didn't take a break in between part one and part two. So all of a sudden you finish and you're like reeling and then you're like, oh my God, I haven't been to the dentist in five years. And like my car no longer starts and I'm getting evicted from my the house I rent. And suddenly like real life comes crashing back in in a way that is gobsmacking. So... So that's what we've been focusing on. And then I think just like preparing our minds and bodies for if, if a part three happens, sort of the excitement of like, you know, putting on the, the scuba gear again and, right. and, and going underwater. Right. I mean, and, and of course, I mean, I was gonna, that was going to be my last question was part three has to happen, doesn't it? So, but I guess you can't, we, you, I mean, you can give us that exclusive right now if you want, but it just has to happen. You can't leave us dangling like this. Well, I, I don't think there's any guarantee that a part okay. three will happen. You, you know, I think it has to be, I, think that, I mean, I would like to make one, but you know. Okay. Let's let's get into the nitty gritty then, if if that's okay. Um, I mean, first of all, I, I'm reminded of I, I wrote down a quote from Doctor Percy that he says to uh, the OA in that um, scene where he's about to show her what he's been working on in his secret room, and he says, "What you see in there can be very challenging. Are you sure you're ready?" And I feel like that could be like a, an announcement to the viewer for the whole of of the show, really, in a way. Is that in your mind slightly when when you, when you wrote that that line? No, that that's a good thing that you found. I don't think so. you know. You have to understand that for us, maybe I remember the first time uh, you read some of the like a new idea, or Britt and I talk about something, or one of those ideas like hits us for the first time. That that's like intense or exciting or different. But for us, we've been with this for so long. It's hard for us to see it the way, I guess, just the viewer sees it. Like, so we don't think it's hard to digest. At the same time, I remember when we were writing that scene and we had, you know, I mean, what's fun about making a long form story is you see over time how things play out for the audience. And I think one of the things we did learn in making part one is that sometimes if you just suggest to the audience, like, okay, I'm going to hold your hand here and we're going to walk into an That's unknown right. space together that the audience feels in, in safe hands and can for a moment sort of allow themselves to go into territory that is new and, and actually, you know, sort of be open to it. So I think it's really interesting that you picked out that line in particular, because I remember thinking, like, Hap should prepare us, you know? Right, right. And I remember when, when I was lucky enough to be on set, you were saying I brought up the issue, the, the thing about the title, the opening titles arriving so late in that very first um, chapter. And then yeah. you said, oh, we've got spintingly moments like that, definitely, in, in part two, and, and you certainly did. So, for example, just to jump straight into um, Old Night, for example... The, this extraordinary octopus consciousness when you when you hit upon that as a, as a visually and as a dramatic um as an incredible scene that you build up to in that episode you, you must have known that is going to be a spine tingling moment for the viewer and 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 what is and, and you, am i right in thinking that you you you'd read a book about octopus consciousness that that was the inspiration for that but why particularly did you decide it's got to be an octopus no, that's such an interesting question. I think Zal and I have long, sort of for the last couple of years, been interested in the idea of just interspecies communication and, and also interested in the idea that, like, 
you know, we humans have a lot of hubris. We, we really assume that like our intelligence is the most interesting or the most evolved because we can sort of talk to each other about it. And, you know, because the octopus doesn't have a voice, we can't imagine that, that it has a kind of sophistication or a way of living or exploring or being in the world that may in many, in very many ways be beyond ours. Um, we did read this book called, read a couple interesting books. One was The Hidden Life of Trees, which was really beautiful on the subject of how trees communicate and forest work. And, and then um, Other Minds, which was about cephalopod, you know, consciousness and how almost alien it is in, in, in the way it operates as a creature. It, um, its brain is sort of in all of its arms. So unlike how we operate, we sort of think something and then the thought travels and then we move. There's a sort of break in our thinking and our movement for the octopus. It's think moving it like those things are combined. And so we were so interested reading all of that and thought, oh, how is there a way that we can walk the audience into a space through Nina's mediumship where we can contemplate again all the amazing forms of intelligence around us that we tend to dismiss or ignore. I think it was also a great way to dramatize entering someone's life that's in, uh, that's in at full speed or in full motion. It, you know, I, I sometimes imagine if there was another version of me in another sort of universe, it, and I entered his body, you know, does he have kids? Does he have, you know, what's his job? You know, is he writing a novel right now? It, it, you would then go read a hundred pages of that novel that he's written. And that's pretty intense. And we wanted to dramatize the idea that OA was going to come do something that for Nina, she had spent years sort of perfecting, which is this sort of mediumship with an octopus as a sort of like, uh, I don't know, an evening out at this Syzygy nightclub. And there was something just like really full on. And uh, I, I don't know, I, I thought it told the story. Oh God, it did. Yeah, absolutely. And, and and I guess, and was it in a way like the whole setting of San Francisco helps, doesn't it, with this? Because I was thinking because like having this outlandish nightclub with all the Russians in it and with these like half naked guys wandering, the whole film thing felt that added to that whole thing that actually you prepared us for this mind blowing visual of the octopus um, and tapping into Nina. But the whole setting helped, do you know what I mean? And, and I feel like the whole setting of San Francisco helps the whole of part two in a way, in, in all kinds of different ways. Well, we we have a friend, Michael Tolkien, the writer who, who made Escape of Danamora, and he was showing us photographs of himself. He's a burner, uh, which means he likes to go to Burning Man every year. Oh, yeah. Showing us all these photographs from Burning Man, including um, one of the founders of Google, you know, dressed up as if, you know, dressed up to, to the point of disappearing uh, 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 into the sort of Burning Man landscape. And the idea that that's also a part of San Francisco is both unsettling and exciting. There's something about it that really spoke to us. And so for us, Syzygy was a little bit of that, uh, you know, underground right and then we were so lucky i mean this is where like it's really a collaborative art form and, and we were lucky on part two that 
a lot of people brought their A game. So, so Jonathan Jansen, our location manager, he was able to find this old cell phone store uh, that then opened up on the back behind the cell phone store was an abandoned chocolate shop from the 1930s. And that is what Sisygy is. We put the, the, the seamstresses in the, oh, the wow. front part, which is where the cell phone store was. And then we built that sliding wall. And all of a sudden you go inside the chocolate shop and that's where uh, the nightclub is. And so that's something we had written, but you could easily not found the right location for it. And so we were very lucky that things really aligned in part two to really tell the story over and over again, because without space or location, it just becomes kind of, I don't know, it, it, it's grasping at something. And I think that the way that it's photographed and, and that actual space I don't know, holds these secrets. Does that make sense, Britt? I was just going to say that you were right. I love what you're saying. And I also love what Boyd was saying about San Francisco being such a character, because I think that's an element of the film noir. The place really becomes character. And Saul's right. We, had, we were very lucky in, in our production designer, John Goldsmith, and in, in Jonathan Jansen, who's location scout, because I think a lot of these scenes would not have it would have been hard for them to stand up if we hadn't found the spaces that held a sense of mystery that makes that possible. You know, you, you find a space that's just a little bit off or sort of ordinary and suddenly the scene collapses in that space, no matter how hard the actors are performing, you know? Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Like it's like the production design and the look of it just makes it all, you, you kind of do buy into it, even though what you're watching is, you kind of never seen anything like it in a way. Um, and the other thing, of course, in that scene, when when um, uh, Old Knight is, is tapping into uh, Nina's mind, we then get this incredible foreshadowing, don't we? This bit where she's transported to the flight on the plane and we see the kind of the back of we presumably this is this is this this is the big foreshadowing of the final the final moments of the, of the whole of part two isn't it and did you always have in mind that you would foreshadow that, that there'll be little the clues that you could you could go back and see once you've seen the, the the ending the extraordinary ending with the third dimension if you like that you're going to have moments that would lead us into that i don't know what you're talking about but <laughs> We can talk about the ending, right? I mean, I we can talk about the ending, but we can't talk about what's being foreshadowed. We oh. can say that, like, I think all over the place we try to do sort of small hooks that connect, you know, right. like in, in part one, Homer has his NDE and he's running through the ho a sort of hospital like space. And, you know, he, he, as he's crawling through that tunnel in the beginning, it, it seems like a classic NDE light at the end of the tunnel. And then some weird hand pops up. And then of course, all those questions are answered in part two when, you know, he is Dr. Roberts in this asylum yeah. space that is the, that is the space of his near death experience and ends up putting his own hand up in the ceiling at some point and feeling around, um, for what might be another Homer up there. So it's, it's, um, we do try to, you know, make sure that at some point there's visual proof um, mm. that everything connects. Right. Absolutely. Um, and, and you mentioned the other. So the other big, I think, another big extraordinary moment I wanted to talk about is, is the tree internet idea. Um, that amazing scene. A, I'm intrigued by how you. How do you get that down? One, I think that one of the themes that emerged from when I when I met you was was the constant. I mean, in a way, struggle, but also 
joy of getting your ideas onto the script and then turned into visually the the show i mean that must have been a, this must have been a particular challenge how you get a where did the idea of the, the the tree internet come from b how you then managed to make it work in within the within the show within the episode well the tree internet is something that i really like because i think it exceeded at least my imagination of it maybe not maybe brit has a more sophisticated imagination she was able to imagine it better i thought that the end visuals were really stunning and are moving. I was very pleased with that. That's it's rare that I feel that way. Usually, the ideas themselves feel a lot more uh, potent or perfect than than the than my limited execution. But I thought with the tree internet, there was a, a nice marriage of 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 uh, uh, I don't know style and and, and story. Um, but that. Trader, that's real. Britt, do you want to talk about that? Yeah, I mean, we had been doing some, re- I mean, I think I mentioned earlier that the book, The Hidden Lives of Trees, which was really inspiring because you read that book and you realize we think we're so clever for coming up with the internet, but the trees have had their own internet, you know, communication system underground long before we ever came up with ours. And they use fungal networks um, to send messages back and forth to each other. And so all of that that you're watching is actually quite real or is inspired by what is real. And um, I think one of the things that I learned this go around that was really helpful is you have to, when you're doing scenes like that, where a lot is going to be done in VFX later, you have to figure out the piece that's tangible that you can hold on to in the filming. So for me, I was really um, adamant about us casting the voices that would become the voices of the tree internet it was described in the script as 10,000 genderless whispers. We couldn't get 10,000 people into a recording booth, but we got 12 people and we sort of conducted them like a chorus and we recorded those voices, you know, saying the, the sort of trees dialogue. And then on the day when I'm just hanging there in a harness in a big empty blue space and there's nothing around, we're playing that voice. And there is that to sort of react to in real time and, and, um, create the feeling of something real transpiring. And then we all hold on to that later through the edit, through the VFX process so that there's some, I guess, human tangible thread to pull through. Um, we did a similar thing with old night. I had a, um, a little ear thing in my ear and we went and, and cast um, old night's voice well ahead of time. And he was there on the day performing in the space with us so that it could create the feeling of a real dialogue happening. Um, even and, if, and mediumship, because it's like those invisible earpieces really are like a voice in your head. Yes, yeah. Right. Right, that's brilliant. I mean, I mean, it did look it looked absolutely beautiful that scene, but also I feel it's like a big it feels like a big thematic moment because the 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 trees are telling you telling you that to build a team, aren't they? And and, the, and it feels like that's touching upon this theme of the individual versus the team, because the OA seems to know the know the pattern. It seems to already in, in in certainly in the first series built her this group of you know the group of the kids and BBA. Whereas Hap, on the other hand, and and I remember in the, right towards the end, she tells him he's lonely. There seems to be this big clash between being on your own and being wanting to be with a group and wanting to is that is that a big theme of the show that that came out of that that particular scene touched upon yeah i mean i think it's a big theme for us in general because i i think personally i mean i I think probably agrees but 
but uh, speak just for myself. Like it, it's a big theme of living in the world right now. This idea that I think we're very alienated, and very lonely, and very isolated. And whenever we get a chance to be with a tribe or exist the way that I think, you know, we lived for hundreds of thousands of years as tribes with a lot more equality, with a lot more uh, companionship. I mean, I think that's, you go onto a college campus and people are smiling and they're happy. And I think they feel a lot more integrated with each other. I mean, of course, the alienation from capitalism and from modern life exists even on college campuses. But I'm just trying to give an example of like, when we're with people, I mean, sometimes you feel it on a film set, though film sets are very hierarchical. There is something just nice about being with a group and doing things as a team or a family or a tribe. And, and that just seems so rare these days. We're obsessed with, with lone genius, with solitary rises, with individualism. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and that, I mean that, that 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 comes across completely as well in, in that that big scene, that big confrontation between um, Hap and the OA at the end, where she 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 because he because talking to Jason Isaacs, as far as he's concerned, and I guess he has to do this as a performer, you know, Hap his character isn't necessarily a villain or bad or anything, but I think she tells him that she exposes that flaw, that big flaw that he he kind of you know can't think about what he the impact that what he does on other people, and he you know that that lone element to him feels key. Yeah, that's that's a, I think that's a really good thing to bring up. I think Hap has this idea of the world that that what that in his effort to know, you know, the what, whatever is the capital T truth that any means justify the ends and that everybody around him couldn't possibly be smart enough to understand what he's after and therefore, you know, they're sort of at the mercy of his will. And, um, yeah, I love that you picked up on the fact that, you know, Jason being the tremendous actor that he is, doesn't, you know, he, he really just passionately believes from, from Hap's perspective that the science is everything and that the science will ultimately be a liberator. Right. And, so, and so in some ways he's taking all of this pain on himself, um, in order to ultimately, you know, give everybody the truth. You know, I, I think that's how, um, part of how he approaches it. Um, I, I think as writers and as performers, you have to try not to judge your characters. You, know, you, have to, you have to try to get inside them enough to understand why they're behaving the way they're behaving. Um, and then just present that to the audience and let the audience just let the audience bring the wisdom to the table. You know, you're just bringing characters. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, the return of Riz Ahmed uh, w w was a brilliant moment in in the uh, in part two and, and a complete surprise and and I guess he's now even more of a mystery that character than ever. And I'm not. I don't want you to to kind of give away anything about who he is or what he is apart from. But he does give. He seems to give, a give key advice to BBA and her friends, and also seems to be key in in looking after or helping the OA. Do you want, can you say any more about that? Or just did you always plan maybe to have that character return just for that brief moment and then tantalise us with who or what he really is? We definitely always planned to have him return. We, we saw that um, we really felt that that moment he spends with French uh, in the house at the end of part one 
you know, was meant to be a suggestion that, that there's, is not there's more than meets the yeah. eye. You know, mm. and we had hoped that some of the audience would ask the question like, well, what's this FBI guy doing in the house? Like, how did he get in? Like what? He just has a key, you know, or did he? Um, mm. And so I think some people were asking those questions and hopefully seeing him again in chapter six felt like a, a worthwhile payoff of some of the questions they may have been asking. I mean, I think that he also helps, he helps BBA and the boys, but he's also helping the audience sort of start to maybe, uh, you know, solve the puzzle. I quickly wanted to mention French because um, I loved the scene where he, um, you know, goes on his grinder, is it actually grinder or grinder style app? <laughs> and um, It's an actual grinder. We it's use actual, all apps. Right. Yeah, it's either Grinder or Scruff. I think it's Grinder. Yeah. Right, right. Um, did you always have in mind that he would he would be gay and and that did you and also to have a scene where it was such a brilliant done because obviously you can you know you can fall into all kinds of traps where you you make clearer characters gay, but it felt very real and very aim, kind of match effect in one way, but also the guy he meets felt very just not real and non stereotypical, and then and then advances the story as well. That whole scene I thought was was brilliantly handled and also adds to the whole diversity of the whole of the whole you know that the, the OA has one of the most diverse groups of characters I think in, in TV history so was it a key for you that that uh, French would turn out to be gay yeah I mean a couple things first of all I think Andrew Haig directed that mm. scene so beautifully right I think it's beautifully done and I think the actors did such a beautiful job with it um you know Brandon Perea had never really done much acting before he got cast as French. So all of this is new to him. And the, the, I thought, I just think he did a great job at, at French being gay. I mean, I don't think we thought about it consciously from the very beginning, but I don't think we also, we're not really big believers that we're writing these things. We, we feel more like we're uncovering them. Hmm. An analogy Britt and I love to use amongst ourselves is is the idea that we're gardeners in a garden and the story is blooming or that we're archaeologists and digging out, you know, old bones or fossils. So we're just like dusting them, you know, digging and dusting to expose things that exist already. Um, and so I think that that either of the metaphors, if you use the garden metaphor, I think the French, the idea of him being gay is, oh, yeah, of course, French is that. Of course, French was hiding something. Uh, of course, there's more than meets the eye to French, you know. Mm. But I think my favorite part of that whole thing is Steve's reaction to yes. it. Yes, yes. You know. It's perfect, isn't it? And I think it shows because Steve's Steve's journey to use that kind of cliche word is incredible, isn't it? Because he start, he's, it starts out as a fairly, you know, a jock who's quite, you know, homophobic and all of that. And then he's now by the end of part one, he's been on a huge show. But by the end of part two, he's an inc one of the most... I don't know, caring, open, passionately believing in the OA and the whole and the whole thing, isn't it? That's that's an interesting progression there, I think. Yeah, it feels really organic. Like it doesn't feel like there are levers or dials being pulled. It just feels like, you know, I mean, I guess maybe onto something we were talking about earlier, or that you mentioned earlier about the series or things we believe in, which is the idea that because Steve, this lone wolf character, meets a tribe. He gets to evolve in this way that he might have not evolved into had he not met the tribe. And, and, and you know, I, I think that all of us have felt that way—that we met a group of friends, or 
you know, in our culture, I think it's more that you, you fall in love and you, you meet a lover and you feel that. But I think there's also something to be said for meeting a, a group of friends or a tribe and coming into your own or changing the direction of your life. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, can I ask you about the aspect ratios? So you've got, you've got three different aspect ratios reflecting the three different dimensions we've seen so far. Is that fair? That, that is fair. And what's crazy about it is that we sort of wanted to delineate the dimensions through aspect ratio, but then, you know, it was funny, like right before we sort of finished the OA, we saw uh, homecoming, Sam Ismail's homecoming. Yeah. And he's playing with aspect ratios there too. And, uh, uh, it's just funny cause that's, it, it's funny how these things happen in waves. Like, you know, I don't remember aspect ratios changing too much in the old days. Uh, and now they're another tool in, in a filmmaker's arsenal. Yeah. Right. Maybe in Brian De Palma films right or something. Yeah. 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 Um, and the, 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 can I ask you about the, 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 when the revelation of, um, the, the mind flowers and the invisible river and the whole idea that within all of us, is this right? That within, within our consciousness, we've all got these, these forking paths of God. And so are you, so is this part of the whole idea that you're trying to kind of expand our minds in a way as viewers of what you've, what you've created um, and expand our idea of possibly what humanity is and what nature is and what, and how we're all thinking is that, is this, is this part of this whole big plan? I mean, it's hard to, I think what we can say about that, without saying too much, um, one of the funny things about science to me is that, you know, sometimes there's this perspective inside science that it is fact, you know, that it's like, this is the answer, period. And then, of course, like, you know, another decade passes and everything that was proven and sacrosanct is, you know, upended. There was a time when there was a great conviction that the earth was the center of the universe and they were ready to burn anyone at the stake who suggested otherwise. And now of course we know that that is not the case. And so um, what I think is interesting about science is that it is in the same way, poetry or literature or there, it's always just our best guess and our attempt to describe what is ultimately in some ways undescribable. Um, that's as much as I can say about that without revealing too much. So I must jump to the ending to this extent. And, my, and I, what struck me in a weird way by showing us that this new dimension is a film or TV set or set or whatever, and you you are you, you're revealed as we see you as Brit and Jason Isaacs is married to you apparently, and all of that, like this extraordinary thing you have happened at the end. It almost added made it feel more real to me the whole thing because almost paradoxically by showing us the artifice a, a moment of artifice you kind of underline that actually the whole thing is about storytelling and people building narratives with each other does that make sense and was that part of your plan or, and, and is it true that this was all part of, you had this big ending for this part two of your 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 epic right from the start when you conceived the whole thing years ago yes and yes <laughs> uh, i think the way that you said it was really beautifully said i mean i don't think we need to add to it at all it it is the OA, I think it's fair to say, is about storytelling. And, and, and the idea of narratives is quite potent these days. You, you know, there are competing narratives 
for, as Britt was saying, science is a very powerful narrative for understanding the world that we live in. Um, long form stories are also powerful narratives for understanding the world that we live in. There's also, as Elodie says to OA, there are also these narratives between people and, and maybe those narratives, there are echoes of them between in, in different, in different parts of the multiverse. I don't know. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> and did, did you always have the, um, apart from the big idea of that of that ending and the meta quality of it, the the details or, for example, Brit being married to Jason Isaacs, was that or did that happen later? And, and that was a kind of, it's kind of funny and weird and, and discombobulating and adds a whole new layer of stuff for us to think about. I mean, that was there. I mean, one of the things that Elodie says that I love is the idea that, um, when two people meet, the story can just be strong and it, it ripples or, or echoes out into the dimensions around and the relationship can take on different sort of categorization or different name, but something similar is still being worked out between those people. And I, I think that, you know, on the ground level of our lives, you know, where we can't exactly perceive whether or not a multiverse exists day to day, but we do encounter people and sometimes feel like, wow, is, is this a pattern or relationship style of relationship that I keep trying to work out, you know, inside many different relationships through time? Um, so I think a lot of people, you know, you get the sense that there are certain scripts that you keep repeating and you and the question is, can you can you break outside of them eventually? I think a lot of people know what that feels like. Yeah, I mean, or at least I do. You've said it before that once in a while you meet someone and it feels like it's the beginning of a long novel. Yeah, yeah. Mm. What is? That? You know, I guess I guess Britt and I would say quite practically that feeling is a real feeling. Like it, it's not provable, but a lot of us have felt that feeling. You encounter someone, you feel like you've known them before or you will know them for a long time or that there is a lot to know is that their looks is that the way they smell is that something about their eyes it feels like it's more than those things and so i guess in our storytelling we are trying to get trying to dramatize those kind of abstract feelings i'll give you a ex good example that i think works well in part two which is homer waking up uh you know we work with amazing collaborators, and one of the great collaborators we work with is Andy Weisblum, who's a, our dear friend, but also an amazing editor. And I remember when he showed me the, his first assembly of Homer waking up in the in the glass elevator. I felt feelings that I hadn't been able to like put into. I still can't put into words, but they were feel they were like very potent feelings that you normally don't feel when you're watching. I don't know, like a series. And mm. so it, I think that's what we're trying to get better at doing. I mean, I think it's going to be a lot, it's a lifetime. Uh, uh, you have to build craftsmanship of trial and error of trying something and not working, trying something and it did work. This was a small example for me that it worked. You, you know, Homer is remembering something that is both completely antithetical to what he's experienced as a psychiatrist, and yet it feels like the truth. And I don't know, I feel that feeling sometimes in my life. I mean, clearly not 
at that extreme, not that, you know, not the way that we've, we've dramatized it. I, I love what you're saying. Cause I feel like culturally speaking, we throw away a lot of the feelings that we can't explain or narrativize. And what's so bizarre about that is like, I mean, I think we can all probably agree that time is not linear and yet we convince ourselves that our feelings like must be linear, but like, why? Yeah, that's that was an incredibly powerful moment because it felt like Homer's consciousness had been suppressed and that it was all and it was like, you know, gushing, (laughs) suddenly gushed out at that moment. So I felt that the power of that, that totally. Yeah. Because you're waiting for him to come on, just realize, remember, you know, remember the OA, remember, remember Prairie, yeah. Yeah, and sometimes those moments are just about a, a couple of things lining up, a certain mm. quality mm. of light, a gesture. You know, for Homer, of course, being in an enclosed glass space again, and like her hand against the glass, and all, you know, and the spiral staircase in front of him, and all of that aligns in a moment and is a trigger to unlock what has been repressed. And whether you're dealing with multiple dimensions or timelines or not, like that definitely happens, you know, in a single timeline, in a single dimension where you have kept a memory locked in your heart and then suddenly a certain smell or a certain piece of music. You or know, syzygy of events, like the, lining, of events, the yeah. lining up of certain events completely opens that memory up. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's one of the interesting things is that like, Deja vu, memory, feeling of having known someone, feelings of like ghosts or that, you, you know, that you're connected to people. All these things, are, film is a great way to sort of try to get at some of these feelings or try to uh, dramatize them. And so that's, we're interested in that in our work and we're interested in just trying to figure out ways of showing that just for ourselves. I mean, I think it just interests us, let alone the audience and, and hopefully some, some, some people in the audience like it too. Oh God. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, quickly on a practical level. So did you presumably had to film that final scene? It looked in England somewhere. Did you, where did you film that? And how did that happen? That's Twickenham. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's Twickenham. Uh, uh, sound stages, and he's. And we we went and really filmed him, Patty Gibson, um, chasing the, the the ambulance. Wow! Well, and can you give us an idea of what the how, what the cast felt like when they did they respond when you when you gave them those, that final scene in the script? How they, 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 I mean, their minds must have been blown as well. You know, we didn't really do that. We didn't really give it to anybody. Okay. Uh, only people who had it were. The crew didn't even really have it. I think they were kind of confused to what was going on. We, we just wanted to keep it a secret. And so I, we, Britt and I explained the ending to Patty. And I remember going out to dinner with Jason and explaining it to him. So Patty and Jason were in the know. And of course, our cinematographer, production designer, producers knew. Um, but I don't, I don't think a lot of other, I, I don't think the rest of the cast, did they know Britt? Maybe Ian, you yeah. know, but I think, um, yeah, yeah, I, I, I think, uh, Ian and Kareem, it's up, but I think, no, I think for everybody, it may, it, it, we're just living in a new universe now in which things are like very suddenly easily disseminated all over the world in an instant, you know? So yeah. if you have an ending that is it really going to be a lot more fun for the audience if they don't see it coming then it's funny you have to go to some lengths to protect that these days oh yeah it's incredible to pull off like a proper 
surprise thing, isn't it? Yeah, in in any, in any kind of yeah pop culture kind of thing, it's an extraordinary achievement, really. Yeah. <laughs> Um, another things I've got to quick ask you about. I have to ask you about the the the, the robots doing the movements. A the little ones that that um, Elodie has are, are fantastic, um, and the whole character of Elodie as well. Like you know, and then the big versions of in, in that final thing. They did you again? Did you always have in mind that you would have these ro- robots and how and why actually? Did that? Why are they? Why do they exist? Why why does she, she have those instead of? Can you answer that at all? Rather than have people doing them. I can't answer that, but I just wanted to take a moment to talk about Irene Jacob, the amazing actress who yes. plays Elodie. When we were younger, we admired her work so much, the work she'd done with Krzysztof Kieslowski, and just her performances in films. So the idea that we were lucky enough to work with her was a big uh, uh, honor for us, a big moment for me and Britt. And uh, she really came so prepared uh I don't know. She just brought an authenticity, a realism. Her work in both Christoph Kozlowski's Rouge or Red, which is the, the his final movie, and, and also in The Double Life of Veronique. I don't know if you've seen either of these films, but they yeah. they are they touch on the metaphysical. They were hugely influential to us. And she sort of as a guru of the metaphysical, uh, uh, working with us, that was just super exciting. And yeah, the the robots was interesting. I, I, I think we were fascinated by the idea of do the move. What do the movements feel like when it's not human bodies doing them, but machines doing them? Machine versus nature interests us. Mm. I, I don't know much more to say. But... I guess only also that we loved the idea of a character suddenly appearing who knows a lot more than Hap, you know, like I love when you throw Hap into sharp relief. Like I think when you meet Leon in his mentor in part one, it really does that. You're like, wait, there's somebody, there's a badder baddie than Hap, you know? Yeah. Like, and I, and I think with Elodie, it's like, oh wow. She's coming in with a technology that feels truly alien. And it, it, for me, it just also puts the whole dimension in sharp relief because you're like, oh, I thought we were so smart with our iPhones and our satellites and our you know, rocket ships. And then here arrives this woman from another dimension where their technology is very far ahead of ours. And in fact, we were saying that to the wonderful sound team we worked with. We were like, whatever sounds you guys pull to like give these tiny robots a voice, it has to be not the sounds you would think they have. It should be like the sound of a future technology. And so they had fun coming up with that. And oh, and yeah. I think that she, she grounds it all and makes it all feel real. I mean, as, as Zal was saying, we were tremendously inspired by her. I honestly, Zal told me to watch Red when we were in college. She was like, you've got to see this film. And I can really honestly say that it was her performance in that movie that even made me interested in the idea of acting. And so to get to play in a scene in a scene opposite her was for me it's like i can retire <laughs> i'm done yeah she's incredible yeah, also, yeah. And, and does she need so i'm fascinated that elodie has sex with hap and is that a key element does she need to have sex with him somehow to maybe power the, the robots or something that felt like something that needed to happen for her she was just uh saying that feeling and, and sex is often a quick way to feel something 
that feeling is crucial to powering, you know, OA had said in part one that you have to move with perfect feeling. I think the idea that you need, uh, you need to be feeling something in order to jump. is kind of part of the mythology. Yeah. Mm, absolutely. I must have mentioned Kareem brilliant performance by uh, Kingsley Benadir and whole new central character who starts off as you know this kind of film noir detective and then ends up what we want i won't ask you i'm thinking you know is he might be the oa's brother or he's some kind of key element in her existence isn't he um again it was that you wanted to have a big new character element in in part two driving a whole new section of the story if you like and then tying in at the end yeah i i mean Kingsley, my goodness, Kingsley Benadir, what an amazing human being and performer. Um, there's so many moments for me that, especially the ending, I just, I think he brought something to that role that nobody else could have brought to the role. And it, it was. Yeah. And it, it could have easily, it could have easily not worked. And he made those moments feel real. You, you felt like there was some sort of evolution from him. It, you know, we were, there's a real thrill to film noirs, especially today, because film noirs are all about the anxiety of time and place. And gosh, I feel a lot of anxiety about time and place these days. The bummer the, the for me and Brit is that almost every film noir ends with, you know, the violent death and destruction of the femme fatale, you know, of the female, the only female character generally. So, you know, whether they're shot in the eye or hanged or, uh, you know, shot at the uterus or, you know, it, it, it's bad. Like, it, it's not even an exaggeration to say that, like, a misogynistic ending is kind of a requirement for the genre. And so we, of course, were not interested in that. We were interested in the idea instead that that the, the, that the detective and the female character were co-detectives and that at the end you know she needs to show him something it, it, it's him trusting her way of seeing the world which at first seems ludicrous to him which helps him solve the case which i think is a good metaphor for all of us about you know uniting our our masculine and feminine sides like i don't think we need to kill the the female side of us at the end, I think we can actually integrate with it, and, and that can be a way of solving solving the, the the case or solving ourselves or whatever it is a metaphor for. Yeah, completely. Um, I wanted to mention the house, which seems to tie in with, you know, the idea this the kind of almost like a, there's a mythology of this this very special space and of, of spaces being portals and just the idea of of humans, I guess, needing spaces. Is that fair? Is that partly what this is about? And what was the genesis of having this very important literal house, this space that, that becomes key and almost becomes is, a, is part of a mystery as well, part of the whole mystery to be solved? I think if we answer that, yeah. it takes away from the fun of it. But yeah, I think yes to everything you said. <laughs> okay. they're, all, they're all applicable. And we're running out of time, so I'll just ask you a few kind of fairly uh, trivial but important questions to me. The music, I mean, the, a, you know, the original music, and but also the Duran Duran's Ordinary World. I mean, one of my favourite songs. <laughs> How? Why did you decide to use that song in the show? Uh, that's our that's our editor, uh, uh, one of our editors, uh, and he put the song on at. 
and we just loved it. Alex, yeah. It, it's funny. One of the things that I love so much about filmmaking in this way is that it's so intensely collaborative. You're all really writers and authors together. Um, you know, an editor can take a crack at a scene and they can really rewrite the scene, you know, seven to 700 different ways. And that authorship is so important. When Alex came up with that idea for the Duran Duran song, he was adding something to Homer's character that we hadn't written in, you know? And so, so we author the character, then Emery authors it further, then Alex authors it further, then the score comes in and takes it to another. And so I love that aspect of filmmaking. I love that it's collective authorship. Um, and I love that he liked that song because it's a nice moment of, uh, for me, I think comic relief throughout what right. Homer is listening to, you know. Yeah, it's a funny scene, exactly. It's very funny, yeah. It's Another funny moment is in in um, his date, when he goes on the date and Stranger Things is referenced with a reference to the Upside Down, which I loved. Was that, A, was that, because you know there are, among the many, I'm sure you know, there's loads of theories on this set. One of the theories is that, it, that the OA occupies the same universe as Stranger Things. Was that a reference to that or was that just a fun line <laughs> and a realistic line because people would be talking about strangest things i don't, I don't know how you want us to answer that <laughs> it, i think what we loved in that scene was just the idea that like homer goes on this date with somebody who is very fascinated by death and so she's sort of a, a ready and willing like fellow to go there and talk about this stuff with him yeah and i think it's also a foreshadowing for the ending of part two it, you know, she's talking about stories in one space and uh, what if those two spaces intersect, which is what is the promise we're leaving the viewer with uh, at the cliffhanger of part end of part two. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. No, that, that's a good answer. <laughs> that's a perfect answer. Um, now, Jason Isaac says, and he says a few times, he, he told me that he, he'd map, you've mapped out, you know, five i think he says seasons or parts of this story is is that right and for you is it you know, does it have you pl planned it all that that out meticulously or is it more um can you change it around and can you do it differently to that necessarily well i mean i think that we before we ever began this endeavor and before we ever sold anything to netflix we wanted to sort of figure out the temples of multiple seasons have a beginning middle and end to the story so that you wouldn't we wouldn't invest years of our life and the viewer wouldn't invest days of their lives watching it and, uh, and, 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 and not have some sort of, we wanted to be responsible storytellers. So we did some mapping. Yeah. I mean, it was fun and I, it, we're grateful for it. You know, it was a neat experience. We, we showed the first two chapters at LACMA, a little premiere right before it launched the week of its launch. And uh, at the end of chapter one of part two, uh, when Homer, when O.A. encounters Homer and then you see the other captives and then he takes her to go see Dr. Percy, uh, the audience in the theater gasped. And, 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 and that was sweet to see because while we had known it for years, it had taken, it was like a message coming from the sun. It had taken so many years for what we already knew for the audience to experience it. And, and the fact that at least I have no idea what the general public feels or, 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 or the Netflix 
audience feels, but at least the audience in that theater was sort of like excited for that moment of storytelling. And so I was grateful to me and Britt that we had, uh, I was grateful that we had, I felt lucky that we had uh, taken the time to figure out the story before we'd ever started. Sorry, I'm rambling. No, no, I feel, I mean, I guarantee you every single person watching it has felt that, felt that gasp, felt that incredible gasp. It's like a, you know, it's, it's an incredible moment. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in terms of, um, I mean, you can't say, uh, uh, you know, for definite what's happening with the next part, but have you, because I know you write, you did, you, you wrote the whole of, the whole of, all the scripts for, for each part were written, weren't they, before you filmed them, um, like you film a movie. So can you even say how far you are down with the actual nitty gritty of writing uh, the next part? Not a stitch. <laughs> okay. Not, not a stitch. Yeah, I'm in the I'm in the phase void of just going to the dentist, <laughs> my car, doing the laundry that I haven't done for five years. You know. Um, but no, it would be. Of course, we we would love to keep continue the story, and we would love in any form to 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 tell where we have seen it going. You know. But sure. that's up in the air, you know? Yeah. Well, um, thank you so much for taking the time to do that. And, and thanks so much. I think, you know, I think I'm, I'm fair in saying for everyone that I know that's watched it, it's, it's, it's one of our favourite things that we've ever seen on TV. It's just an incredible – already, you know, even, only two parts in, we're already – only, you know, two parts <laughs> in. We're, our minds have been blown and, and, and it's just an incredible thing. Thank you very much. That was Britt Marling and Zalbat Manglidge finally pulling back the curtain uh, slightly. Boyd, is everything now clear to you? No, but I don't want it to be. <laughs> it's slightly, well, it's not, everything, they, they answered everything. I, want, I wanted to know kind of like, yeah, how the, you know, it's, it's the oldest question in the book, isn't it? How do you come up with these ideas? And, you know, trying to get, eke that out, I think is fascinating. Yeah, and they're very, very good at talking about that stuff, I think. I'm, so I'm astonished the first question out of your mouth was, tell us about the sex-powered robots. I need to know That's about the sex-powered robots. true. Though that was a really fascinating answer they gave, that the, the yeah. robots are powered by emotion. So when she says she needs fuel, she needed emotional fuel. Yeah, that was I thought that was a lovely, yeah. that was a lovely fact. Yeah, the, so those are the little, yeah, the little robots that do the movements, um... That Elodie, the character of Elodie, yeah. um, which has the same played by Irene Jacob, this legendary actress, ha- that she has, and that she, when she has sex with Hap, Doctor Hap, um, she she then collapses, doesn't she? And then she yeah, does, yeah, yeah. So it's an, yeah, that is an incredible scene, yeah, one of many. But she does it's have sex with also him. super creepy because he's prepared that syringe of sedatives. Yes. He's clearly planning to kidnap her and imprison her, and she's like, "Nah, mate, I'm gone." Yeah, it's like his default option is to <laughs> yeah. kidnap and imprison people. Yeah, he's, yeah. he's problematic on so many levels, isn't he? <laughs> so problematic. Yeah, just sit down and have a conversation. Seriously, you yeah. don't need a syringe. Yeah. Um, well, well, let's start off. Let's start off with mm. what you thought. Now, I know you love this. So yeah. So when you got to the end of this, when you saw the final scene, what did you think? Yeah, so I, I, um, I think it's a, I, th- I was elated. I'm going to use that word because um, I'm going to bang. I've banged on about relentlessly the fact that I went had a day on set of yeah. this show. Right? Now, now, I'm now, never going to stop talking. What day about was it. that? Tell, tell us. Now. Right. So that they filmed. They they were filming two different episodes with two different directors. So Zal was directing one episode. Mm. Um, which I think was episode two off the top of my head. And then it was episode seven was the other episode I saw some of being filmed, which is filmed by a director called Anna, Anna Rose Holmer, mm. um, who's directed uh, indie films before. Um, so that's the penultimate episode. And one of the 
scene. Do you remember there's a, there's a dream sequence that begins the episode with like a glass coffin and um, you remember that scene where Nina is in a forest. I saw yes. that being filmed. So yeah, they filmed this extraordinary dream sequence. So that, which was pretty incredible itself because that had a lot of elements to it. It had a woman in a black rubber mm. outfit in a glass coffin, basically, and the OA and Brit Marling in this extraordinary outfit and the little Russian girl who was her as a child, mm. all of these things. So I watched that being done at the end of the day and being filmed with, in, you know, in, in a very ambitious way by Zal. And it was all quite, it was pretty incredible to watch that. And then I also got to watch the character of Kareem, kind of he in, in, when he goes back to that house, both first when he arrives at that house in the forest yep. and when he goes back to it as well. Yes. Both of those scenes. Remember, he ends up having to go into the, into into the, the lake. lake. Yeah. Um, so I didn't actually see him going into the lake. Shot. Good shot. Very good choice. It's an absolute of, of, of fit, a fit buff. Yeah. Um, uh, Kingsley. Yeah. yeah. That was really interesting because I got to meet um, Liz Carr, who played that character of Marlowe, this kind of scientist figure who um, helped develop the all the dreamers. Yeah, dreaming. she's been working with Pierre Ruskin. Yeah, yeah, working with Pierre Ruskin, and she's an amazing figure. She, she's in um, she's in Silent Witness on British TV. That's where people recognise her from. But she's an amazing person in her own right, and you know she uh, she was fantastic, and she recognised me from being on Sky's Oscars coverage. Oh How excited was that? So I got you, the, so I no, kind of, you were not anyway, allowed to go on to the way and immediately right. make instant celebrity friends. I've always made, already made instant celebrity friends. She's amazing. So I got to see these two quite different things and I got to see Jason Isaacs hump that the body up the up the side of the forest. Do you remember that bit as well? Do you remember when he when he so he's killed yeah. 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 So that bit. So I got to see, so I had spent quite a lot of time with Jason as well. And he was obviously uh, I meant to ask Zal and Britt where they knew about the whole hello Jason Isaacs thing from Wittertainment but I forgot to ask them that. Um they probably would have gone what the fuck They've are you talking about? What are you talking about, yeah. about Boyd? Um so it was all the different. I felt like I saw so many different elements. I got to see Jason. I got to see Kareem. I got to see her, and just generally watching the way they work, which is unbelievable as well. This like kind of collegiate thing where everyone's joining in, giving ideas, and they're both kind of working stuff out. The best way to film stuff. It was absolutely incredible. What what, what question am I answering? Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> the ending. Yeah. So what they said to me. One of the really interesting things they said to me was they really loved the fact. I banged on about the this title sequence thing. In, in so very first episode, the title sequence arrives sixty two minutes in or yeah. something, and I loved that so much, like beyond all reason, because <laughs> that's a spine for me. That was a spine tingling moment, yeah. tingling moment. Absolutely. And they were like, "Yes, we wanted it to be. We meant it absolutely to have that power." And coming up with these powerful spine tingling, incredible moments, almost ecstatic moments. Uh, was what they're aiming for and how hard it is. And they're talking about how hard it is that the stuff comes, curses them in their mind. They've got to write it on in their script and then film it somehow. And just the kind of, not pain, but the, the difficulty of that is mm. part of the whole, you know, incredible creative process. And they also said that there's a more twisty labyrinth in series season two. It, it wants it to be like a labyrinth and like a kind of different mysteries. So mm. there's the mystery of the disappearing person of the house of how these people connect with the OA, of what the OA is, of what the different dimensions. There's so many different mysteries, right? Which is why I think they chose the noir genre yeah. as an unknown genre. But they went, but we wanted an ending to have to be satisfying. We didn't want to lead you up to something and then not leave the audience like hanging. They were very firm about wanting to, and I felt it. Was, I felt the ending was managed to be mind blowing as I keep using that word, incredibly audacious, thought-provoking, because now you think, well, how do they follow that? How does that impact on season on the third season, which we must have? So it did all of these things. 
and it's and I can't think of a, a better way of, of of achieving all of those objectives of just blowing people's minds, making people lust desperately after the next the next part of the story, yeah, and just shocking us in this incredibly pleasurable way. So it's like, yeah, I mean. I genuinely think it's one of my favourite things in TV history. Well, let's talk about that ending since we've uh, since we've brought it up. Now, it's an incredible thing that happened. So, having solved the puzzle of the house, Kareem looks through the rose window, which is a window which essentially transcends dimension. He can see through, and he sees into what we're calling the London dimension, the third dimension, Twickenham, where, which is in fact Twickenham. Yes, yeah. it's a Twickenham dimension. Yeah, we see into that's what the house is. The whole mystery yeah. is you get to see Twickenham. Exactly. That's essentially the goal of. Yeah. Solved the whole mystery right here. Totally. So he sees the mystery. Now, we see in the video footage, Michelle, the character of Michelle, goes up. She looks through the window and then collapses. Now, I suppose we're supposed to understand that her consciousness somehow has gone through into the Twickenham dimension and is now inhabiting, or at least cohabiting, the body of Ian. And then by calling Michelle's name, Kareem beckons Ian. He climbs up and then the second that he crosses the boundary, Michelle's consciousness goes back and she's back in her body. So he solves that mystery. He gets her back. But in doing so, the bird flies through. Yes. And here's where it all gets a bit crazy. It knocks O.A. out of the invisible river. She falls down. Britt bangs her head. Jason Isaacs comes in and suddenly we're left with a moment that, you know, because we can see the set. We've looked down. We've seen, you can see the set of of Kareem's houseboat. You can see, you know, the set of where they've done the movements. He comes down, and you you see that that brilliant moment where where Hap is in Jason Isaac's body. He realizes that it's Brit when they use her name, and then I I get the impression in this because we talked about how they talked about suppressing consciousness, didn't mm. they? That when you go into a host body, you can suppress their consciousness or you can coexist with it. And I think it becomes clear in this that Hap is kind of if not coexisting with Jason Isaacs, at least has access to his thoughts. Yes. Because he immediately knows who he is. Yes. And he says, I'm Jason Isaacs. Yes. In a slightly weird accent, which yes. I also think is key. Ag- well, I think Jason Isaacs has spoken about that, that right. he, he was trying to it, it, try and twist his head around. He was trying to act the part of Hap being inside Jason right. Isaacs right. and accessing Jason Isaacs's voice, but he's still Hap. Yeah. So Amazing. I think he deliberately yeah. skewed the accent totally. slightly, which is an Absolutely. incredible bit of yeah. mind-bending. And by the acting. way, you know he does, he's, he keeps in accent when he's playing an American. Yes, yes he so does. Th- and that I, can, I can testify to that because when I interviewed him in the recording interview, he is doing it in American. Oh, really? Yep. Interesting. <laughs> yeah, it's weird. But that's a bit, so he gets in there. Now, it's worth noting, this is not our Twickenham. This is not our reality. No. This is a reality in which Brit Marling yeah, and Jason Isaacs are married, yeah. which of course they are not in real life, because no. as they've said, they are there are echoes. Yes, so their relationship between the OA and Hap has echoed through dimensions, yeah. and yeah. this has happened. And then, just because that wasn't mind bending enough, they're in the ambulance, and suddenly Steve opens the door, comes in, sits down, looks at Hap, and says, "Hello, Hap." Yeah, yeah. What the fuck? Totally. In fact, that's literally what I texted you when I saw this. I yes. was like, Boyd, what the actual fuck? Yes. So I think that's that. That's it. I think that's why it, that another element to why it's so brilliant is, is because okay. So we've got the idea. Uh, we're trying to work out what they're getting at is that you know they're now talking about that this is a film set and that they're, they're act, and, a, and yeah. a show is being filmed with Britt Marling and um, Jason Isaacs in it, but it's not exactly reality or our reality, as you say, because these yeah. two are married, and it does reflect upon the whole. Um, story so far, and the, all the big theme of storytelling, and of the people that the idea of deja vu and everything. So it's not like coming out of nowhere. It's not gratuitous. That's right. It's, it's, so not only does it all do the things I went on about just now. Yeah. It also makes sense it thematically. Does. Now I, I think obviously 
we don't yet know why Steve calls him Hap and why you know. I think yeah, it's all part Steve of the, has never seen no Hap. Right, exactly. But then, as, as some people have posited on the internet, <laughs> is that a hundred percent Steve, who we think has made the jump, or they said, yeah. could it be Homer? Yeah. His consciousness in the body of Twickenham Steve. Right. I think what we do know already is what well, I, th- I think they've made a clear, you know, ish is that. Well, no, they have made it clear. Is that all of these people who are going from one dimension to another? Some people can. Some people are aware. So Homer isn't aware of his previous one. Then he finally does become aware, as we yeah. talked about. Because you get the impression that he jumped, yeah. but for one reason or another, his consciousness ended up being suppressed by the host's consciousness yeah. until he gets triggered by the glass elevator. Right. And then um, the OA. So Ni- Nina, you know, Nina wasn't aware of Prairie, um, yeah. and then and then in this one. And then I think she was told, wasn't she, by Elodie. Elodie said, or, or maybe, no, sorry, it was Old Knight, wasn't it, who said, you're not going to be aware. And that, that could be a problem in the next version of you. And that, yes, that's you know, right. So um, them all, it has, there's, there's different versions of how it all works. I don't think we know why necessarily. We certainly know, but we certainly know there are, that there are different ways of going from one dimension to another and that impacts in different ways. And there's different levels of consciousness. And there are people like... BBA, who seems to be able to be aware yes. now of all the different people. She can sense in, across dimensions. She sense across dimensions. Yes. And Kareem can see across dimensions. Through the rose window. Through the rose window, because he <laughs> sees the whole picture. That was the overview, which is the title, yeah. I think, of that last episode. And who is he? You know, is he... It's hinted that she's got a brother, or it's mentioned that she's got a brother. Is he the brother? Why is his face the thing that all the people, the dreamers, could see? That's right. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so it. All, so that's the incredible th- achievement for me of that ending, is that it does tie these things together thematically without, of course, still bewildering us and making us confused and setting us up for the next chapter. But it works so perfectly thematically and in tying lots of things together. It's it's an incredible achievement. I can't, I mean... And know. it is. It's layered all the way through this. As you say, it's when Old Knight uh, gives the OA an NDE. Old Knight sends her into the Twickenham future where she's on a plane. And she's mm. on a plane and the person speaking on the plane is speaking in an English accent. So we can only assume that that is flight BA411, which is, of course, what Kareem uses to solve one of the game puzzles. Unfortunately, I've Googled it, BA411 is a flight from Belgium to London. So I'm just saying yeah. it wouldn't be in San Francisco but that's not no, the but end she there. could have flown but the real she goes to see a woman with a short hair presumably Brit Marling yes, Brit Marling is yes. clearly doing a press trip in Belgium and she's for Netflix and she's flying yeah, back that's right. and, and um, <laughs> you know it's set in Amsterdam Netflix is centred in Amsterdam in oh, Europe it's all tied together boy it's all tied I mean, together that, that, that's not in Belgium is it? it's in Holland sorry <laughs> <laughs> my, my geography went crazy there for a minute. I got overexcited. But there, but there's more. There's more. So yeah. the other layers, we've seen the bit where when Scott recounts his NDE, his NDE, yes. in the same way that, that Homer's NDE took him to the San Francisco dimension, Scott's NDE took him to Twickenham. Because he says, and his, his literal quote is, he says, lights were everywhere. We were in a warehouse. I saw OA. It was her and not her. Hap didn't call her OA. He called her Bryn or something. Yeah. He said something to her. She laughed and kissed him like they were a couple. There were cameras in the air above them. Hap called out to someone, but his voice was different. He spoke with a British accent. See, it's yeah. like reading it now, it seems incredibly obvious what that's alluding to. But of course, when it happens in the show, you, you I mean, you just take it on board as just another crazy thing. You don't think of it. You don't think it through. Whereas Bryn, clearly Brit. Yeah, yeah, completely. And that's funny as well. And it, 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 one of the things, I read one review which accused the show, I mean, absolutely terrible. I think it was in The Guardian, actually. 
and accused the show of being slightly humorless and po-faced, which I think people said before about the first series. But this, I think that is, is funny yeah, that they did funny. that. They foreshadowed it by, by her being called Bryn. Yeah. You know, I was tempted to mention that, to call her Bryn throughout the interview, but <laughs> I, I stopped myself. I thought it might completely backfire. But, um, yeah, there are moments like that that are that, 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 that foreshadowing. A, it's so clever, you know, how... I just I can only imagine the you know the post-it notes and the the threads as they're as they're working out the narrative yeah. and working out the scripts. But but those moments are so brilliantly done. Yeah, those. those it's funny how moments. this season built on the mythology of the first one so much. So when you end the season one, you're you're no, you're never one hundred percent sure whether or not she's telling the truth. The whole point of season one is, is she a reliable narrator or is she not? Yeah. And, you know, you have the box of books under the bed and you are unclear exactly. at the end whether she has died yeah. or whether she has gone to another dimension. I think the answer to that question very much lay with Netflix, which is if you cancel it, <laughs> she's dead. If you pick it up again, she went to another dimension. And the very first episode of this one clearly solves that biggest mystery. Is she for real? Yes, she is. Yeah, because Jason, I remember Jason Isaac said as well that he uh, half he read the scripts. You remember, you know he's not, he wasn't the first choice of this role he's very open about this you know the story who was the first choice he, they, we don't know so oh. he would know that's unprofessional so he won't say who was the first choice <laughs> but he's very clear that he it was very last minute i think they they hired someone it wasn't going to work out they knew it wasn't going to work out for whatever reason they sent him the script like two days before they were starting filming in new york and he read the stayed up all night to read the script absolutely blew his mind and um he said it's only on reading halfway through filming i think season one that he suddenly thought i might not exist I might be a figment of the OA's imagination because she might be making this whole thing up. And there was always that element, wasn't there, to, yeah. to part one, that it could all be. They planted that. But I love the fact that they got that out of the way. Mm. In a, immediately. In a, immediately. And they explained the books. Explained the books. Yep. And there was like, oh, great. And it was very, and that was a very satisfying theme because I think you have to get out of the way because otherwise you'd be distracted by that because it gets so weird with Old Knight and yeah. the tree, the internet trees. You don't trees. be wondering whether or right, not Right, you don't. Real. And mm. I think you, that's kind of what I was, I was trying to mention that when I was talking about the ending. Is where it all kind of makes sense. And that's why people compare it to Twin Peaks. And particularly Twin Peaks, I think, the the, the return, you know. Yes. Which I did love. I know which you did. I, I know you hate it. I loved it. But for me, this is a much bigger achievement. I, I know it's slightly childish to compare, but I'm going to. Because it does have those mind-blowing things happening that Twin Peaks has, particularly like visual things that seem mm. to come out of nowhere. Suddenly a, 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 psycho, a, a psycho octopus arrives, right? But actually there's this is more grounded. This has more, because it, it has that narrative basis yeah. established. I think it, it just feels, I'm, believe, I'm buying into it. I'm believing in the fucking octopus and the internet of trees <laughs> and the idea of faith. And I'm the most atheistic, you know, I don't believe in anything. You know, I don't believe in anything supernatural or anything, but I, but I totally buy into yeah. this. And Twin Peaks, I, I love it and I'm entertained by it, but I don't feel, it doesn't feel like it's trying to make me believe in it as a no, thing. No, I don't believe Twin Peaks has, an, has a grounded underlying yeah, mythology. exactly. I think it's, frankly, drivel for drivel's sake. Right, I wouldn't but, agree with that. It, but it's definitely entertainment for entertainment and surrealism for surrealism's sake. Yeah. Whereas this feels like, oh my God, this, they're definitely, not, you know, without using that, that phrase, they're trying to say something. They're, they're, there's definitely ideas they're exploring yeah. and they're finding mind-blowing ways to do it. I keep using the phrase mind-blowing, but what other No, it, it is, is mind-blowing. I mean, this is, this, is, this is Terry Pratchett's Trousers of Time, <laughs> writ large in TV format. I was about to say the same. Of course. Um, what I like about this show is, like, it starts you off like there's a game, and it is quite grounded. Like, or, like you're, you're on board with this. And I think the second they introduce Old Knight, like, Old Knight for me is a signpost. It's like, yeah. okay, I hope you're strapped in because, this, yeah. you know, the roller coaster is about to hit the downturn. Like, this is going to go yeah, nuts. Absolutely. Then we have, we have mind flowers, internets of trees, 
windows to look through dimensions, puzzle houses, doors that disappear, you know, uh, a medium and an engineer, complete and utter craziness from that point on. What I also liked, and we talked about this, we touched on this in the regular podcast, that there was there were things we couldn't talk about. And we weren't allowed to say ahead of time that Zendaya was in this. Oh, yeah, I meant to ask about that. Yeah, that was a Sorry. secret. She like, Her involvement <laughs> yeah. was something Fuck. that they wouldn't yes. talk about Yes, uh, as one of the people in the house. Again, I think that just shows they want, they, they like surprises. I mean, they yeah. talked about, you know, they want that it's hard in this day and age. I think that, you know, we touched upon this to give viewers satisfying things they don't know about and, that, and to keep secrets in this day and age. I remember, you know, um, Stephen Moffat goes on about this a lot, that part of their, well, they were trying to do all the way through Sherlock and a bit, why people, some people, and I don't agree with them, got slightly annoyed by it was because it was trying to pull the rug from under us a lot. Yeah. And I feel that's what they're doing with this and trying to find out the most emotionally connected way to do that and even and casting Zendaya who is a massive iconic figure particularly for young people I think mm. um, like globally is a huge thing keeping it a secret is an even more brilliant thing um, so I think that yeah it was just purely for that to keep like very to add to the pleasure of the experience it's very interesting because some creative people often say oh, I'm not writing it for anyone don't they they're like oh you know I'm just writing it for myself I think Zal and Britt I get the sense that they actually are very very aware of coming up with ways of pleasing us of yeah. making it an incredibly enjoyable viewing experience as well as a thought provoking one but they they have tapped into that like there are key moments in this from the very first episode of the first season as you've mentioned for the like the titles that comes in that yeah, is a yeah. real emotional gut punch yeah, moment right. and there are so many of those in this you know that that and and, and Zal articulated that really well just like that bit where Homer's consciousness emerges and he's like and he's in the glass elevator that is yeah. so emotionally totally. powerful yeah. and there are so many beats like this that they really know how to push viewers buttons like the moment when uh, OA and Kareem are figuring out the puzzles in the house yeah, yeah. Just, it's just an amazing idea that house the game how um, how Q Symphony ties into this house which happens to be built on poisonous gas but also was created by these two people the medium and the engineer to essentially give people a window into another dimension and I love the aspects of mythology like you can look through the window and it's fine but you have to have completed the puzzle of the house for the window to work you yes, have to have come right. up through the house yeah, properly. Yes. You can't just wander up to the window and look yeah, out yeah, of it. Yeah, it's incredible, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And, like, and they were saying how, you know, the collaboration, everything about that, the the design, the meticulousness of it is 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 brilliantly done, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. So it's like actually like in any other uh, in any other way like a lot there are a lot of scenes in in the middle part of the of the series of of um, Brit and um, uh, Kareem of the OA and Kareem kind of together work travelling through spaces aren't they yeah, and trying yeah, to work yeah, it yeah. but for me it was never it, all, it kind of worked because like yeah you're watching them discover what's happening mm. you know like the contrast with this and like something like Westworld for me like Westworld got really irritating in season two because you're like <laughs> it's constantly just showing you stuff bewildering stuff and implying there's lots of different dimensions and different versions of all these different characters and beating you around the head with the mystifying nature of it. Whereas for me, the, the, why the OA is different is because you're, you're taken through the mysteries in front of you. I'm not really expressing this, but you know what I mean? Like yes. you're, you're enjoying the journey with the characters almost. And like, so whereas I feel with, the, with something like Westwood, it's just a, it's a puzzle and I'm watching, I feel like I'm aware of the writers putting it together. Whereas you're totally immersed. That's the mm. It's immersive for me, the OA. But I also get the impression from this that you, you believe watching the OA, that Britain's Zell have this mythology worked out, that they know oh. exactly the answer to all your questions, sure. whether or not they choose to share the answers with so many other shows you know from Westworld you get the impression that they are 
teasing an audience with mysteries for the sake of having mysteries. You know, and, and maybe they've got answers, maybe they don't, and in all likelihood they're making up as they go along. You don't get the impression that there's something inside the puzzle box. In Westworld, I think the puzzle box is its own sake. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah there's, there's an empty... There's nothing... Yes. Inside, right. It's the opposite of empty, isn't it? This is like a fall. Yes, this, <laughs> this is a fall. There's so much shit. There are psychic octopuses yeah. inside the puzzle box. Yeah. There's a load of stuff. Yeah, I mean, like for we, you know, we didn't even touch that much when I talked to them about how, you know, they kept the the BBA and her and the gang yeah. of of teenagers separate from in their episodes. They're completely separate. Completely separate. Which I found completely satisfying because there were like two. Again, I read reviews that went, oh, you know. You can't just kind of take time out from the narrative, and it was annoying because you know you build up to a big thing, and then suddenly you have these two hours, which are almost like a different feel. And they are directed by Andrew Haig, who's, who's a brilliant yep. director. But they do there is like there are like an indie, you know, like teen indie drama comedy mm. thing, and they're very and I but I thought they were incredibly moving I, I and, and beautiful, completely. like beautifully filmed. You know, the, the, the scene where they all run into the sea, which is like oh, it really captured yeah. like freedom of of teenagers, like finding some kind of freedom in their friendship I love the fact they, they, they none of them ever phone their parents they all talk about it they go on and on about it and BBAB keeps saying you have phoned your parents haven't you and they go yeah yeah and they still and it's like that was so, so clever because like you, you wouldn't you're so entranced by yeah. this new world this new, so I loved those episodes and, and I loved how they let him direct them in a way that was like slightly different feel mm. but also within the world of the OA and I like the fact that you just took time out with them I thought they were absolutely brilliant I love, I love the whole thing which is partly why I asked about you know the character of French making him gay. I thought that was just, I just, I just thought they really let them breathe yeah. and gave. And, and I think I got to. I love those characters, and but I think people have said they're one dimensional. The, the teen characters. But I don't think they no, are I at disagree. all. I think, I don't think used an incredible either. limited amount of of dialogue in a way. But you, you I felt I get to know all of them. I love, I fucking love those people. But it's, it's BBA nice, particularly. I but mean. you could have left those characters behind, as they were literally left behind, and you right. could have forgotten them. Exactly. And I love that they didn't. No. And I think the people who didn't like those two particular episodes, focused solely on them, were possibly the people who fundamentally didn't like. You know, the episode from season two of Stranger Things. Thing. Yes. You know, when 11 right. goes off and does exactly. their own thing. Exactly. And I feel like they get in their head that they have a goal in mind. Like, I want to see this story yeah. play out. And any deviation from that is a distraction. Yeah. And I think if this played out week by week, if this was a, a weekly installment thing, those episodes would be annoying. Right, like, exactly. Because they would derail. You think, well, now you've just wasted a week of my time. I now don't know what's happening. But it isn't. It's no. just, it's an hour interlude and it's a beautiful interlude. And then the next one is there for you afterwards. Yeah, completely. So yeah, you're right. Fine. Yeah, people got um, ridiculously angry, didn't they, about the episode yeah, of Strange Things? I loved that. Yeah, episode I thought Strange it was really, yeah, but I, I, I thought it was a really interesting and I totally, totally appreciated what they were doing. And I, but I think even more so in this case, I, I, I loved them. Um, individually, equally, mm. I, I just think that relationship between BBA and those kids is so moving. Yeah. The casting, which I mean, that you know, I know. Sure, obviously, the show is a gig to go on about how much they love their cast, but Patrick <laughs> Paddy Gibson yeah. as Steve is fucking incredible. He's very, very good. Um, Ian Alexander, as you, you know, uh, that that's a really interesting thing that they got. Ian Alexander, who's a trans um, actor, young trans actor, yeah. playing a character who is. A, one point a boy and at one point a girl and when you, and, and it's so important isn't it when you first see that photo of the missing person that Kareem is trying to find that you're like oh you kind of recognise but you're not sure and that, that's key they needed Ian Alexander for that you know they needed someone yeah. like that it's so interesting I think well, one of the questions and we'll get on some listener questions in a minute but one of them was like how long did it take you before you twigged that Michelle was yeah. Buck and frankly it took me too long like it was I was a bit embarrassed when I was no, like, but I oh think that's God, but it's supposed to be like that? that no but I think you're supposed to have like deja vu I think they, they, they mentioned the deja vu thing which I got I think you're going yeah. oh is that, that I recognise that kind of, it's brilliantly handled I twigged when she twigged 
good. When she goes, Buck, yeah. I went, oh, it is Buck. Like, it totally didn't twig with me. No, and so I, I kind of thought it might be, but I wasn't sure. And I and I let it kind of hover in my mind. Yeah. But I, no, I'm the same. I think that's exactly how it's supposed to work. Yeah. I, can I just say, I want to see a, a, a dimension where there's more from Mo, pregnant Mo, oh, who's yeah. amazing and yeah. underused in this. Yeah, no, Mo is incredible. I agree, absolutely, 100%. Yeah, and, and you know, I, I'm trying to think of, oh, yeah, I want to mention that Phyllis Smith, Playing BBA, absolute yeah. legend. Yeah, well, Phyllis Smith, very, very good. And Emery Cohn as Homer. Yeah, I mean, my God, you know, just he's very, very good in this. Fucking brilliant. I mean, the last thing I saw him in was uh, was a black metal film called Lords of Chaos. Where oh yeah, he murderizes the shit out of a load of yeah. people. Yeah, so he he's traumatized me slightly recently, but he's he's very, very good in this. And Jason Isaacs, and I think Jason Isaacs, by the way, is aware that this is one of the most special things he's ever done. Oh yeah, without I think a doubt. he's very, very and. And he's had a storied career. I've got loads of time for Jason Isaacs. He's brilliant in literally totally. everything he's ever done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. But he's been in some, he, as he himself would say, he's been in some dodgy stuff. But always elevated them. Oh, totally elevated them. <laughs> but I think what's interesting, what I was going to say is, by the, what's very fascinating is by the end of this second part, it's now clear, it's clear to me, and I feel that him, Hap, sorry, he is Hap, him, Homer, yeah. and the OA, and Steve, I feel like those four yeah. are almost very closely entwined and that they're going to they have they're going to have to be in it all the way through like how do you know what I mean whereas you could envisage so you know one one character did die in the middle of you know one of the young characters died yeah, from the drug Jesse and it's really sad and powerful but I feel like they those four need to be together throughout the rest of this thing and maybe Kareem as well now has joined them that in, in that although you know we're not sure how he's, if he can make it through to that Dimension, how fuck knows how that's going to work. There's a lot of a lot of unanswered questions at this point, but it's interesting. So Elodie mentions leaving echoes is dangerous, right, which yes. is an interesting idea. It's like you can find yourself in a life completely unrecognisable to you. You would shatter yourself, she says. Uh, and she says, not to mention you and Homer might not even know each other in a dimension outside an echo. And, uh, and she says they need hap. So it goes back to kind of what you're saying about Steve and Homer and the OA and Hap, about they're drawn together, but they also kind of need each other to ground themselves. Yes, yeah, completely. Are there any other things you wish to discuss, boy, before I pull out some listener questions? Just that I'm finding, I find it fascinating that, you know, they haven't written a jot of part three, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, so it, it, and so that means we do have to wait. We are going to have to wait. I mean, they will recommission it. There's no way they're not going to recommission. It. It's just, I mean, you know, I know. I, I'm pretty sure how Netflix, you know, do are really pleased with the show. Yeah, it's inconceivable yeah. to me. That I mean, it is. I think it is. You know, it's very expensive. They have complete creative freedom. You know, the the scope and ambition of it means that it's a big investment. But I mean, it will be. I would. It will be the most devastating. Put it this way: I can't think of a more devastating um, loss oh in God. TV history than leaving it there. Um, so, you, I'm constantly thinking. Honestly, every time I think about it, like how how is it going to play out in part three? How does the the new universe, this meta Twickenham. universe, Twickenham, as we're calling it, um, Britain, Britain, um, Jason together, and all that? It's going to be. It's just it's so exciting. The idea of how you how you deal with that. How yeah. you will of, will we end up on was it BA flight four one right? The flight from Belgium, Belgium to, London. to London. Will we see the presumably Netflix press junket that she's been on yeah. in Belgium yeah. before flying back to London? Yeah. You know, how meta is this going to get? Yeah, exactly. Will Ted Sarandos turn up at one point? <laughs> I'd love to see that. I mean, I wouldn't mind and. <laughs> And, um, and the fact that I've been on set, maybe I can get a small part in it, you know. Yeah, I'm more, like maybe maybe yeah. we'll yeah. see you on set uh, doing your so. visit. Steady. I like the idea of the of, of BBA as well and that group somehow, you know, again, I feel like they're going to try and have to save um, the OA. Because remember, in this next one, he's not going to be aware of the previous 
versions of herself. Well, yes, because she's been warned about this. She's, which she's been she? warned of, yeah. yeah. So I feel like BBA and the teams and Riz Ahmed and all of these things are all going to have to and work at their best to try and show her yeah. and, and awake that consciousness in her. That's the sense I get. Anyway, Riz Ahmed is kind of a guide, isn't he? He yeah. sort of floats around. Yeah. Because as you said, like our old knight says to her, in the future, you don't know who you are. You know, you forget your true nature. So presumably that's what's happening next. Yeah, exactly. Right, let's have some listener questions. Uh, we have one here from Elf Walking who says, Hi guys, what do you think about changing of the tone from an indie vibe to stylish noir? Do you think the show will change again in future seasons? I think the answer to that is a resounding yes. Yeah, and I think I think it's a good question here because um, they're very clear that, you know, if if the first part was... I don't know, what would you describe it? Like part indie, um, fantasy, phantasmagorical yeah. thing um, with big religious underpinning. You know, it, it, it was what it was. This part two was very much a, a noir. But definitely they want to say it's, it's definitely like a Californian noir, like long goodbye style thing. And, and you know, with, with a, with a you know, and by the way, the only noir, I think they, they, they say with a, with a, person of colour as the main lead detective. Yeah. And, and as I said, you know, a femme fatale doesn't die at the end. So there was, so, and there definitely will be a genre, I think, that underpins the next part. I don't know what that genre is. I mean, maybe, you know, can you imagine it would be like knockabout comedy or something? It's you a know? carry-on I mean, film. They, you know, because people, yeah, I mean, I'm not saying it's going to be a carry-on film, but I don't, who knows? There, yeah. There'll definitely be a thing, yeah. an influence. There and will it, be a, an and atmosphere. What I love about, I think it's not like, and it's, it's not like you don't watch part two and go, oh, you know, this is exactly like Long Goodbye, or this is exactly like all these mm. film noirs. It's just a kind of underlying. Yes, it's subtle. It's, it's it subtle, subtle, yeah. yeah. Um, and I think there will be an underlying genre, whatever it is, to the third part, definitely. Yes, I agree. Uh, David Blythe says, "How oh, this is a multi-part question, but the first bit, how did Stephen get there and why does he call Jason Hap when Jason calls himself Jason? Uh, well, I think that's to signify the fact that he sees that it isn't just Jason. He sees that Hap is there. So he's aware that Hap has jumped into Jason's body. Now, whether, of course, that yeah. is, in fact, Steve in Steve's body or Homer in Steve's body or really anyone else in Steve's body, who knows? But I I'm think it is Steve and Steve's body, yeah. yeah. And, and I do Steve. feel, because I, 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 I feel like he is the one who's the most devoted now to the idea of the movements and of the OA in general. So I feel it did make sense to me that he was the one. I wasn't surprised that he was the one of the group to arrive at that moment in time. Yeah. Um, and of course, he's also, he's, he's, he's an Irish actor, Paddy mm. Gibson. So, you know, on that level, it's like, well, yeah, you know, he might be the, the one who's n- <laughs> nearby geographically. That's very true. Yeah. Near, but near, I think he does course. go on the biggest journey of, of all the teams. And I love, and I love that character, how they've taken, they've definitely, they've completely um, punctured that, you know, the toxic masculinity he's got in the first, when mm. we first meet him and how he's become this kind of, Lovely guy, basically, like caring, properly passionate, caring figure. Yeah, he's a, he's a great character. Yeah. Uh, David also asks, what did BBA actually do to fulfil Rachel's command? I.e., why didn't she jump? Also, where is Rachel? <laughs> um, uh, well, th- that, see, that's an interesting. One. So Rachel, I mean, is dead in yeah. the. She's dead in the San Francisco dimension. But then death isn't really death because obviously the NDEs in the first place is how we discover the existence of other dimensions. So, are we to understand that death actually? transitions you to another dimension. It's not Mm. just death isn't death. So Rachel seems to be sending messages through dimensions. And BBA can sense across dimensions. So, you know, they say, you know, why didn't BBA jump? That's a good question because she said it, Rachel said, it's only safe for her to go. But without her, they would never have known what was going on in the San Francisco dimension anyway. So Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I think BBA... She's integral. Yeah, she's integral in, in a different way, isn't she? And it's like... 
all the way through, I feel like partly Riz Ahmed's character um, is trying to make her realise her special powers, mm. to put it in that way, and her special role. And her, I don't feel like her jumping from one direction to another is, is what she's supposed to do. Yeah. I feel like she is the one who's like seeing all this stuff. And, she, and, I, and I think she will have key ways of somehow being in touch with Brit slash the OA as it goes forward. Yeah. Um, I, I love the idea that she's got this kind of, she's this unique special person. And also if you go back to like the first series, you know, the OA gathering them, this group of seemingly random people yeah. Well, they're not, are they? No. And how, yeah, that, you know, again, that how that all plays out is going to be amazing. He also asks, is Homer dead? I th- well, I think Homer, as in Homer's body in the San Francisco dimension, presumably, yes, dead. Yeah, but- Homer's consciousness, I think we can assume, has probably jumped as well. Yeah, I think uh, so. But we will find out. And the last thing he says, is Renata now trapped forever in the Treasure Island? Uh, I'm going to say yes. I think yeah, Renata's, probably. I don't think we're going to see Renata again. I think we're done. Sorry, Renata. You've had a bit of a... Yeah, I, think that, I think that is is uh, possibly true. Paz Vega, yeah, who's great as yeah. Renata, by the way. Yeah. Uh, another question. This is from Jenna, who says, "Is Elodie really cartoon? Oh yeah. Or could she be the great evil OA is told she is and her friends must de- defeat? I never got that from this. Like cartoon, of course, is the the sort of the female character she meets in the space between spaces yeah, during the her starry NBA. room in that starry room, room thing. yeah feeds her doves that kind of thing in part uh, one yeah yeah so no, I got the impression that LED is what she claimed to be she is a tourist she right, travels from so, dimension yeah. to dimension yeah how she builds those robots everywhere she goes is neither here nor there um, yeah I think I, I was gonna I did see that question I was gonna I could have put that to them but I thought that's too much they, they won't want to go yes no, or no, no and also that, I think yeah. Brit said she she is from another dimension a being from another dimension who has more who knows so much more yes than happen everyone else and that's kind of her significance so I guess but maybe yeah so who knows she could end up being that the same person okay. the same being so Liam says who do you think OA's brother is? Are we supposed to assume it's Kareem? Could it be Steve or the FBI agent? Uh, all of the above, really, isn't it? Could be any of them. But there's definitely a, a Kareem link, isn't there? Like, I, I yeah. refuse to believe we've seen the last of Kingsley Benadir in this. Oh, no way, yeah. yeah. No, I think they for me, that ending is set up like, you know, they all have to return. All those key yeah. characters have to return because they're now tied together in, in some key way. And, but, and and he, the fact that he was the face that they all, all the dreamers in the thing dreamt of. Exactly I mean, that. he is some major important figure and again, I mean, he could be the brother. Yeah, I mean, he could somehow. I, I did... love that moment where you've got them all, all these dreamers dreaming in a room and they all dream of a rose stained glass window, a curved double-sided staircase, yes. a tunnel the size of a coffin and Kingsley Benadir. Yeah, it's absolutely brilliant. Yeah. Kingsley Benadir, who I never see, like to stop reminding people, is an Arsenal fan from Camden. He's an Arsenal fan from Camden? Yeah. Extraordinary. Brilliant. Right, Christelle B says, what was the first absolute what-the-fuck moment in this season? Well... I mean, that's old night, isn't it? I mean, that was a bit... It is you... old night, yeah. It is old night. Yeah, that's true. I was like, Boyd, a psychic octopus? Yeah. What the fuck? Yeah, definitely, yeah. I mean, I like... I think it was... I think, it, you know, there are little audacious moments all the way through, obviously. Uh, you know, I, I like the fact that the, that the OA mentioned that the president is... Um, what's his name, isn't it? It's, uh, it's Joe Biden. Joe Biden, yes. So they yes. jump into a well you know, where Joe Biden was right. president. So that's a little audacious moment, but the proper... The biggest, yeah, because the, the octopus is the is, is, old night is the biggest what the fuck moment, even bigger than the climax of season one, really, of part one with the shooting and everything. Yeah, yeah. it's it's absolutely fucking incredible. It's funny, uh, a number of people I noticed on social media I took real issue with the end of season one, not because yeah. it was implausible, but they felt that 
they thought that in using interpretative dance to stop a high school shooting was in poor taste. Like I know. It, I, I know. think it polarised people on so it many did. different levels. I, I, I mean, I, I, I never felt that. I genuinely, I mean, obviously I am a massive fan of the show, but I, it never bothered me at all. And I think, I actually think what's happened since, which is that, you know, the, 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 the rise of young people who are survivors of school shootings in America, mm. and it's not, not my place to say so, but I just get the sense that actually, you know, that, Almost, it almost like weirdly prefigured, you know. But I, th- I think there was it was saying something about the power of young people to, you know, whether you call it faith or creativity or whatever it is they're doing. I just thought it was a really powerful, moving thing. And if you're gonna, if you're doing something sincere, it's sincerity, isn't it? Like yeah. it's not gratuitous and it's not um, cynical. It was properly, properly sincere. So I don't feel I didn't feel exploitative to me at all. Like I, I, if I saw. A, there have been films literally about, you know, haven't there, high school shootings. They have. Clearly many. based on them. Mm. And that bothers me more than the, than the ending of the OI, which I thought was totally I, I thought when they all get up in that cafeteria, I thought that was so... I mean, yeah. it nearly moves you to tears. Yeah, that totally. Yeah. If you're moved... Powerful. Right, exactly. That's where you can go, isn't it? If you're moved... If you think it's powerfully moving and yeah. you move to tears, then you can't then complain that it's gratuitous. And no, I, agree. I just don't I think agree. it is. I didn't think it did either. Right, we have time, I think, for one more of these before we must go. And this is also from Chris W, who says, uh, and you can start with this one, Boyd. What did you shout at your TV when you got to the ending, when they took us to the television programme dimension, a.k.a. Twickenham? What did you shout, Boyd? I think I shouted, Jesus fucking Christ. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I'm trying to remember what time it was. I think it was, oh, no, it was in the morning, first thing in the morning, because what happened was I'd watched, so we were given... TV critics in advance were given six yes. parts, and so I had to watch the last two live, so to speak. So I think they dropped 8 a.m. Mm. Uh, on the Friday, when, and I watched them immediately that morning. So I think I was literally like, um, you know, watching that bit at 10 o'clock in the morning, probably on, on my monitor here, and I was like, fucking, what the absolute... And, and you know what? The weird, this is the weird thing about Netflix, isn't it? Because you hadn't seen it yet. No. So I was unbelievably excited, and I wanted everyone I know to have watched it. And particularly because you're the main person I know who, watched, who, who liked the first part as much as I did. Um, so there is that sometimes that odd thing with Netflix that it's not as communal as you want it to be. And it is like, unlike, you know, say you're watching a linear thing on BBC One every yeah. week with Line of Duty or whatever, where you're all going, what the fuck, at the same time. You're not doing it at the same time as anyone. But what you can, at least what you can do is I immediately did look on social media and everyone's going, what the fuck, you know, kind of globally. If you, if, so... It's a different kind of pleasure, but there was it was an incredibly powerful mm. moment. And fuck yeah, that's what I said. What did you yeah, say? I, I came to like, well, oh yeah, so, you yeah, you texted me. I texted me, you yes. as it was happening. Yes. you had informed me on the podcast. I must text you immediately. Yes, and it was just Boyd. What the actual fuck? Yeah, in capitals. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and I, literally while it was going on, I was texting you while it was happening. I couldn't get my head around it. Yeah, uh, it's incredible. As you as you said, I think these were your exact words, the most audacious bit of television ever. And genuinely, I agree with you. I think it was an incredibly bold move. I loved what they did with it. I loved how it made me feel. And I also loved the fact that you didn't get the impression that this was tagged on to the end. You got the feeling of all the pieces finally slotting into place. Because right. all of the foreshadowing of that moment suddenly makes sense. And yes, it feels exactly. like the culmination of a master plan. You know, when it feels so precisely calibrated. <laughs> yeah. Which, whereas so many of shows that do things like that, you get the impression where, oh, ratings are lagging, let's do something crazy. And that's, yeah, that's not right. what this is about at no, all. No, no, completely. Uh, no. It feels very authentic. Yeah, exactly. Well, you do, but then you do wonder, like, how, the, how do they top that? Yeah. How do I mean, they top that? I mean, they've... You see, I think they're confident. I think they know. Because I think that's the brilliant thing about them mapping out <laughs> that, that, that in their minds they do know yeah. the beginning and ending of each 
chapter, as they call them, of each season. So I think they're pretty confident they've got more mind-blowing things to come. But we've had two. If all goes to plan, there'll be another three. It took them how long to get from season one to two? I know. And Brits yeah. at the dentist, as she said, they haven't even started work on three. I know. You know, we could we could be. But I, I, you're right. But equally, it's kind of the same, isn't it? With like you know, big film franchises. Yeah. I mean, how long have we been waiting for whatever Avengers, whatever it's called, Endgame? Well, I mean, twelve months. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> you know, that's but quite I mean, oh I know, but right. But I mean, going back to like the how many years has it taken for that? Yeah, it's saga? taken like a decade for us to get. Yeah, there. yeah. So. I think it will be alright, but yeah, it's a long way. Oh my yeah. god, it's a so long way. Seriously, yeah. can we can we it fast will... track this? I need. I don't think all they can, three of the seasons. And I, I need don't them think now. they can fast track it because they're going to have to write the episodes. Yeah, then and they'd probably be even more ambitious. And well, think about it, Boyd. In one other dimension, yeah. it's already aired. People have already seen it. Yeah, that's true. Okay, God, yeah. You're so right. you're absolutely right. okay. Once the podcast is out, you and me outside, find a couple of other people. We'll do the movements and we'll see if we can get there. Yeah, we'll deal. need to eat some kind of mind petal That'll to work out work. where we're going. Yeah, that'll work. And I believe at that point, that concludes our OA spoiler special. We very much hope you enjoyed it. If you don't already, then please do subscribe to the Pilot TV podcast for your weekly guide to everything worth watching in this overabundant era of peak TV. We will be back with the regular show as usual on Monday. Till then, we're off to gaze out of the rose window to get a glimpse of how this podcast went in any of the other infinite realities. Pilot out.